What is Bob Dylan? To find out, you got to use your arms and legs and ears and crawl out your window. It won't hurt you. Welcome to a Bob Dylan primer. In this episode, number four in the series, we're going to dig into the year of 1966, a year that saw Dylan go over the edge and yet somehow survive the fall. During this year, really just during the first six months of the year, Dylan burned with such a ferocious heat that he must have been constructed mostly of asbestos and ice water to have been able to avoid complete immolation. And yet, his songwriting and lyricism, which had evolved in big leaps on each of his first six albums, continued to expand and bloom with great irony, insight, and beauty. This is a Bob Dylan Primer Episode 4, 1966, I Don't Believe You. When we left off in Episode 3, Bob Dylan was on the verge of superstardom, worshipped by young women and men everywhere. Having said that, many people were unconvinced of Dylan's talent and insisted he was a fraud who couldn't sing. Still, the skinny cat from Minnesota had somehow taken the loose threads of the folk tradition and woven them tightly together with beat poetry and the pop sounds of electric guitar, organ, and drums to create something completely new and yet instantly recognizable to those whose ears were properly attuned, calling out to all those within range that something big was on the verge of breaking across the vast American landscape and far beyond as well. As 1966 began, the pressure on Bob Dylan began to ratchet up considerably. Remember, he was the hippest cat on the planet, and everybody suddenly wanted a piece of him. He was living with his secret wife, Sarah, at the Chelsea Hotel in New York City, but most probably still entangled with multiple women in a myriad of ways. Dylan's manager, Albert Grossman, was putting together deals for a massive worldwide tour to begin in the late spring. Dylan had just released two top 10 singles, Like a Rolling Stone and Positively 4th Street, and the record company was undoubtedly expecting more from the next album, which needed to be completed before the start of the world tour. To keep up with the ever-increasing dual demands of creation and promotion, Dylan turned from weed to speed as his drug of choice. In New York City at that time, celebrities politicians, and well-connected rich people knew doctors who gave injections of amphetamines, and it's likely Dylan connected with some of these people and got pretty hooked on ever-increasing amounts of speed. He was probably using other drugs as well, but speed seems to have been the main thing. I don't want to make too much about Dylan's drug use. Over the years, there have been rumors about Dylan using everything from LSD to heroin to having a bad alcohol habit. But I think the thing we need to be grateful for is that whatever Dylan did or didn't do, he was able to continually write and perform music, although he came perilously close to wiping out in 1966, but that was a little later in the year. 1966 saw Dylan get more comfortable playing with a band, not just as a way to get electric backup for his songs, but also to prime his creative pump and give him a broader feel to sew for new ideas. So that January, Dylan went back into the Columbia Recording Studios in New York City, 
where he'd recorded the first six albums. And in four separate sessions that month, he used a core group of musicians that he'd hooked up with just after the Newport Folk Festival the year before. And some of these musicians, including guitarist Robbie Robertson, keyboard player Garth Hudson, piano player Richard Manuel, and Rick Danko on bass, were members of a tight-knit Canadian band known as the Hawks. They'd later become Dylan's touring band and then one of the most important rock units of the late 60s and early 70s, calling themselves simply The Band. At this moment in time, Dylan was going all in with electric backup and he needed a solid band. So while Dylan was trying to assemble a group of musicians to record new songs, he was also looking for a touring band that could handle the upcoming live shows. In these January and February sessions, Dylan was also developing a close relationship with Robbie Robertson. There are a few examples throughout Dylan's career of Dylan enlisting a sort of surrogate male figure to keep other people at bay, a sarcastic, cutting presence that serves as a kind of alter ego for Dylan. Someone coined the term mind guard to illustrate this, as in not a bodyguard so much as someone to protect Dylan's psychic and mental presence. Earlier, this role was filled by songwriter Bobby Newworth, and now Robbie seemed to be the one. So as talented as a guitar player as Robertson was, it's my sense that Dylan kept him around more for his personality than his chops. Anyway, the sessions in New York weren't all that successful, and probably Robbie and the band were just a little too fixed in their ways for what Dylan was trying to accomplish in the studio. He was restless to get his new songs recorded the way he was hearing them in his mind. For that, he turned southward. Dylan's producer, Bob Johnston, suggested he try and record in Nashville and use some of the superbly talented studio musicians down there. And you also get the sense that Dylan, with his relentless impulse towards reinvention, was thinking that maybe he needed to break a little from the tight hold New York City had on him. And from this point forward, although Dylan would still spend a lot of time in Manhattan, it would no longer be his pole star and his geographic center. From now on, he would remain much more an artist of the world than any particular location. So, on Valentine's Day, 1966, Dylan went into the Columbia Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, and recorded a few songs for the new record, including the haunted and haunting Visions of Joanna, which contains what might be Dylan's single greatest line, the ghost of electricity howls in the bones of her face. I want to talk a little more about the effect of the Nashville musicians on the Blonde on Blonde sessions. Robbie Robertson was still there, as was Al Cooper for a lot of it. And Cooper had played with Dylan when he went electric at Newport and was all over the Highway 61 record. But the heart of the new songs was kept beating by three Nashville musicians. Charlie McCoy, who played guitar and a few other things. Joe South, who mostly played bass, and Kenny Buttry on drums. Just to give you a sense of Kenny Buttry's chops, he also played drums on Neil Young's Heart of Gold and Margaritaville by Jimmy Buffett. And Charlie McCoy, who played mostly guitar on the album, was probably the finest harmonica player working at that moment in time. But all the harmonica on Blonde on Blonde was played by Dylan, except on the song Obviously Five Believers. So you gotta think Dylan was trying to up his game with the best harmonica player in the world sitting there watching him. 
These guys were amazing musicians. And even though they were still very young, they were professionals in the best sense of the word. They didn't get wrapped up in Dylan's sometimes strange and distant affect, or the way he seemed pretty stoned a lot of the time. These guys just laid down a groove that was both tight and elastic enough to contain the smoky song poems that Dylan was putting out into the ether. Blonde on Blonde is where Dylan's Dylan voice appears for the first time. You can hear traces of it earlier and later, but it's after the songs on this double album permeated the public consciousness, songs like Rainy Day Women 12 and 35, and Stuck Inside of Mobile, and Just Like a Woman, that people started imitating and making fun of Dylan's nasal tone and delivery. I'm hoping to one day soon devote an entire episode to Dylan's voice and singing, but for now, let it suffice to say that this Dylan voice is just another variation from Dylan's amazingly varied bag of vocal styles that he would adopt and then mostly abandon as time went on. As Dylan himself joked in the documentary Don't Look Back, I'm just as good a singer as Caruso. I hit all those notes. So, pretty much all of the tracks for Blonde on Blonde were recorded, and it was already too much material for a single album, so a double album was planned. And Dylan went back into the studio in Nashville for two more days. And on the very last day of recording sessions for Blonde on Blonde, Dylan and the musicians ran through a song, sort of as a warm-up, a joke, a one-off, and it's what was later titled Rainy Day Women 12 and 35, better known as Everybody Must Get Stoned. The song is full of carnival sounds, a blaring trumpet, drums, crowd noise, and basically it's a one-note joke about they'll stone you when you're doing this and that, so everybody must get stoned. Obviously a drug joke, and one of the first overt drug songs in the rock idiom although there was an R&B hit the year before called Let's Go Get Stoned, and Ray Charles has a smash with the same song. But anyway, Dylan records this song kind of as a goof, and then, what does he do? He goes and puts it on this major double album, the first ever double album in rock. He puts it on there as the very first track, the very first thing you hear when you put on Blonde on Blonde, arguably one of the greatest albums of all time is this kind of jokey novelty number. And so the question is why? Why Dylan put that one first? And my feeling today is that he was kind of looking for some misdirection, almost like Dylan was in the middle of his own insane rat race and he needed to get out and get off the wheel. And he'd just written these mysterious and surprising new songs. But I think he didn't want to be thought of anymore as a kind of folk messiah or any kind of hero or savior. So my sense is that he put this joke song on there to kind of subvert expectations. And if there's anything that Dylan inarguably does better than any performing artist who's ever lived, it's subvert expectations. The experience of listening to record albums from the 60s has become a very different experience today. And Blonde on Blonde is one of the extreme examples of this shift. Imagine you went to your record store in the spring of 1966 and bought this thing. Right off the bat, this album was the first of several things. First was the album cover. It had no writing on the front, which was incredible, and just a picture of Dylan wearing a brown leather jacket and a houndstooth checked scarf wrapped around his neck, 
but the photo is completely blurry. What major pop artist in 1966 would have had the gall, or the balls, to put out a record with a blurry cover? Only one. It doesn't seem like that big a deal today, but trust me, it was. It was also the first rock double album, so you had to slide the two discs out of their pockets, and then slide them out of their paper sleeves, and then put side one of the record on, and the first song on the album was Rainy Day Women 12 and 35, with Dylan shouting the refrain, everybody must get stoned, in his most cartoonish, nasally whine. And the song hit number two on the pop charts, tying like a rolling stone for Dylan's highest charting single to that point. Then, when side one was finished, you flipped it over for side two, and then when that was done, there was a whole nother record to play, so you played side three, and then flipped that over, and lo and behold, there's only one song on the last side of the double album, but it's 11 and a half minutes long. Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. Try and find 11 and a half minutes where you can sit quietly and listen to the song. If your mind wanders, try and focus on Dylan's vocal delivery, this voice of weariness, pleading, and somehow wonder. One of the reasons that Blonde on Blonde is so magical is that it can represent so many different things. It's kind of like a sonic hall of mirrors that changes drastically depending on where you happen to be standing. For me, the anchor songs on Blonde on Blonde are the three astonishing sort of love songs. Visions of Johanna, Just Like a Woman, which Dylan referred to around this time as the best song I ever wrote, and the worn-out majesty that is Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. I just want to say one more thing about the album specifics. There have been many paragraphs written about the meaning of the title, Blonde on Blonde, all sorts of theories and stuff. But one day, I was writing down a list of Dylan albums using acronyms, so Bringing It All Back Home became B-I-A-B-H, and Highway 61 Revisited became H61R, and then I came to Blonde on Blonde, which became B-O-B, which spells Bob. So I think that's where the title comes from. Just a little joke in the midst of all this other stuff. Shortly after finishing Blonde on Blonde, Dylan embarked on a tour of Australia and Great Britain, with a few warm-up dates in the U.S. But before we dive into that tour... I want to take a small side road into what I would call Dylan's generosity as an artist. That generosity takes many forms, some of which we'll get into in later episodes. But one of the forms of Dylan's generosity is his practice, starting in the early 1990s, of officially releasing huge quantities of exquisitely curated, previously unreleased material, both studio outtakes and live concert recordings. Now, it is also true that Dylan was a heavily bootlegged artist. In fact, the first ever rock bootleg was called The Great White Wonder and contained unreleased Dylan material. So a cynical person could say that the reason Dylan released and has continued to release troves of live and archival material is to control the financial gain. But the same motive would hold for almost every major artist of the rock era and few artists have released anything close to the amount of what Dylan has, and there's also been a care and respect for the audience shown throughout the process. 
in terms of the thoroughness and quality of what Dylan and his record company have released to the public. The reason that I bring that up at this juncture is that in the first few episodes of this broadcast series, we were focused on the original Columbia Records releases because that seemed like the best way to organize the material. But now, starting in 1966, we're going to be branching out a bit more to include later releases of material that was recorded at the same time as the original albums. And recently, in the last few years, Dylan and his record label released not only a 379-track compilation set of songs that comprised all of the recorded sessions that Dylan did in 1965 and 1966, covering Bringing It All Back Home, Highway 61 Revisited, and Blonde on Blonde, but also a box set of 36 CDs. Yes, I said 36 CD box set, consisting of every song played live during the 1966 tour. And what's crazy about that is that the songs Dylan and the band played each night varied almost not at all from show to show. So you've basically got about 20 different versions of the same dozen or so songs played throughout the tour. And it's pretty fun to listen to how those songs changed from night to night, which is not all that much, but it does take some dedication and a lot of alone time. So, on March 10th, 1966, in Nashville, Dylan finishes recording the songs for Blonde on Blonde, and now he's got about a month to get his touring band together for Australia and Great Britain. So Robbie Robertson corrals Richard Manuel, Garth Hudson, Rick Danko, and Dylan adds the fabulous drummer and later actor Mickey Jones, because LeVon Helm has decided he doesn't want to join the rest of the band for this tour. And these guys jibed with Dylan. He got along with them. They were probably mostly using similar substances at the time, and they'd known each other for almost a year. So they did a couple of warm-up dates in the U.S., and then flew to Hawaii, and then to Australia, to begin the now-legendary 66 tour. One year earlier, in the spring of 1965, Dylan toured Great Britain, accompanying himself only on guitar and harmonica. And now he was back again. And even though Dylan going electric was an established fact, and the fans should have known what to expect, the concerts he gave in the spring of 1966 rocked the British audiences to their very core. Dylan looked different, he dressed different, his voice was different. And after the first half of the show where he played acoustic, he came out for the second half with a band. And the young man on stage unleashed a sonic assault that triggered an incredible reaction of shock and fury, and the most infamous catcall in pop history, when someone in the crowd yelled out, Judas, at Dylan. An almost unimaginable insult in the context of a musical performance. But Dylan didn't flinch. He stood there, and with a band serving as stoic bodyguards, they doled it out night after night. It's during these concerts where Dylan first demonstrated his tendency, his proclivity, to totally rework songs live, so they became almost completely unrecognizable from the original, but were still able to stand on their own in the new version. Lots of artists have played with different versions of their songs, but they'll usually either speed up a tune and rock it out, or slow down a song and make it more acoustic than the original, but that's about the extent of their revision. Dylan, on the other hand, changes everything, 
tempo, key, instrumentation, speed, even the lyrics quite often, so drastically that sometimes you can't even recognize the song. And yet, looking back, the multiple versions of these songs, for the most part, stand on their own and exist independently of each other as primary works. And that's another really cool thing about Bob Dylan. Anyway, at each stop in the tour, Dylan got more and more strung out and frazzled and depleted until it came down to May 26, 1966, the second to the last night of the tour. And I want to talk about that concert and the following show the next night, which was the end of the tour, and specifically the two versions of Like a Rolling Stone from those shows, which closed the concert each night. At this point in the tour, the band was playing something beyond music. They weren't a supporting band any longer. It was more like a support group, a band of brothers linked by one purpose, pure survival. It's not an exaggeration to say that Dylan was trying to survive, was trying to escape England with his life that May of 1966, and the band was doing everything they could to protect him. This was beyond music. It didn't even really sound like any music that had ever been done before. Even hearing this music bootleg for the first time in the early 1970s, the first moments were totally disorienting, probably not unlike hearing saxophone genius Charlie Parker the first time he cut loose in 1945. I mean, the most notorious audience uprising in music history is usually considered the reaction to Igor Stravinsky's Rite of Spring in 1913 but that was carrying on by some hoity-toity French people. This here was one man, body surfing the moving wave line of a culture that could have swallowed him whole and never even burped. If you want to scare yourself more than just a little, put on some headphones and listen to this Like a Rolling Stone from May 26, 1966. It's on the official release called The Real Royal Albert Hall 1966 Concert and crank up the volume until your ears begin to hurt. Close your eyes and put yourself in a seat in the Royal Albert Hall in May 1966 and imagine what it must have been like to hear this. Try to imagine. The waves of sound are really nothing like music anymore. They're beyond music. And the majestic Mickey Jones, who was just a temporary utility player, was not drumming anymore. He was transformed into an artillery gunner spraying massive rounds of ammunition across the audience, gunning them down with snare shots until all that was left was a ringing in the ears and a cloud of stale cigarette smoke slowly dissipating. Unfortunately, because there was some historical confusion about the date of the Judas show and then Columbia released all these different 1966 tour shows in one big dump, most people don't have the patience to sift through and find the really crazy moments. But I can tell you, the version of Like a Rolling Stone on May 26, 1966 is one of the craziest live recordings ever captured. Dylan clearly decided somewhere in his shook-up mind that he was never going to perform again and that he was determined to expel the most virulent and anguished vocal ever spewed upon a paying audience. He is literally yelling for most of the eight minutes plus of this song. At about five minutes and 40 seconds in, Dylan comes to the line, exchanging all the precious gifts and things, but you better take your diamond ring down and pawn it, babe. And on the words pawn it, babe, 
Dylan's voice completely cracks in half. And then for the next three minutes, he just screams the rest of the song at the top of his lungs. After it's over, Dylan somehow finds a way to say, thank you very much, you're very kind, very nice. It would have been super dramatic if that performance had been the last of the tour. But Dylan and the band had to come back the next night, May 27, 1966, and do it all again for the farewell show. And the version of Like a Rolling Stone that final night is like the black mask reflection of the night before. It's about a minute slower, and Dylan's clearly got nothing left. He's just running on amphetamine fumes and the tough sinew that's kept him together all these nights leading up to this one. The final song of the first ever true rock and roll tour, which given its exhaustive nature might as well have been the very last tour of all time, given the way these still extremely young men staggered off the stage that night. It's truly a terrifying but also heroic pair of performances. And as the last snare roll and harmonica wheeze was buried in a cascade of applause and whistling, Dylan left the stage and headed for the hotel. The next day, Dylan climbed on a plane and flew back to New York City. I wonder what that plane ride was like and what kind of thoughts must have been going through Dylan's mind after all he had just experienced on stage in the past three months. What was he planning? Or was he just so burnt out that he could barely think? As I like to do, let's note Dylan's age at this moment while he's high over the Atlantic. He was less than a week past his 25th birthday. In the space of five years, Bob Dylan has single-handedly changed the face and the sound of popular music in a way that very few people, if anyone, had ever done before or since. And so the question was, what could he possibly do next? After this enormously productive and varied burst of creativity and output and engagement with the public, many people still today believe that these five years represent the essential and quintessential work of Bob Dylan. But the truth, or a truth, is very different from that notion. And what hopefully we'll see in future broadcasts is that Dylan was only just getting started and that there were an abundance of musical and poetic riches, insights, and transformations still to come. Music for this broadcast was provided by Max Ferguson. Sound designed by John Zalewski. Thank you for listening. And if you'd like to hear some of the music reference, please check out the public playlist I created on Spotify under the name A Bob Dylan Primer. Also, please visit our website at abobdylanprimer.com to lend your support and find cool supporting content about Bob Dylan, including links to some amazing stuff. And thank you very much. <laughs>